Welcome back, guys, to another episode of Unprecedented, the podcast that takes you through the life of all American presidents, see how their peers view them, and how history looks back on them. As always with me, it's my man, the one that actually does the research. I just do the editing. Neil, how are you doing, man? Doing good. I'm excited for our first ever two-part episodes for one president. Uh, yeah, gonna... that I... I was shocked when you told me that James Monroe was yeah. going to be the first. For some reason, I thought Lyndon was going to break the seal of being a two-parter. But apparently, James Monroe deserves a two-part. Why Why are we doing a two-part for James? Because James is literally just everywhere in American history in his first 50 years. And mm-hmm. it's it, it's got to be it's got to be him. You know, I, I think that everyone knows or not I mean not everyone knows everyone like has a good idea kind of of what they believe to be true about Jefferson and Madison and and those episodes, you know, we can kind of dive into more of like clarifying those things, but but Monroe really like his story that kind of just like tells everything in terms of the first 50 years. And so I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into him, just kind of where he is on the journey of, you know, our founding of the nation and how he really shapes the country. And so I'm excited to keep going. So so what can we expect for episode one and then episode two? How are you going to break it up for us? Episode one, we're going to kind of still go through the early timeline of him as a young man uh, serving, you know, in the Revolutionary War and just kind of documenting his political rise and kind of where he falls into the discussions around the U.S. Constitution, you know, what side he comes down on in the, you know, fight that breaks out between um, Jefferson and Hamilton and Washington's first administration. And we're going to get right into Jefferson's presidency when we break it up. Um, and I'll, I'll detail why later in the episode. But I think that, you know, it's going to make sense for listeners that uh, they're going to want to hear more about like while he's in power for the second episode and then this is going to be the rise to his power the backstory and then the actual presidency yes um, essentially i'm i'm excited uh this sounds like a very historical heavy two-parter i didn't expect it from james monroe honestly for some reason i expected this from a little bit from john adams or maybe uh saving it for washington but hey i'm an audience member just like our listeners so i'll just sit back and enjoy but before we actually do this like always i'm going to set the stage real quick the year is 1816 otherwise known as a year without summer due to unconditional weather and crop failures across the nation indiana becomes 19th state of the united states the treaty of st louis is signed between the united states and native americans but general jackson refuses to honor certain treaties between the Cherokee Nation and the states and starts moving against the Native Americans, essentially removing them from the southern part of the United States. And our boy James Monroe defeats an awesome-sounding name, Rufus King. (laughs) Come on, that's the best name. Grover Cleveland is up there, but Rufus King. And becomes our fifth American president. And with that out of the way... Neil, take us through part one, James Monroe. Yes. And not a presidential name, as you've noted, that necessarily stands out, right? And yeah. it's probably because you know he's following in the footsteps of presidents with exhaustive legacies. So make no mistake, though, Monroe was in the thick of almost every sing- significant political moment in America all the way until the end of his presidency. Like, if we lived 
in a world where the Assassin's Creed pot was real, and you could only choose one person to gain a first-person perspective of the whole 50 years of the country, um, it would be hard to find a better person than Monroe for the political elite perspective of the country. You're so, speaking my language right there. The Assassin's <laughs> Creed pot. Yes, yes. It, it like It's funny how eerily it is that he's just kind of in every single spot like where you would want someone to be for like a video it's game Ezio. he's essentially Ezio he for all Ezio our Assassin's Creed fans out there you know the crossover between people that listen to biography podcasts and Assassin's Creed players is very very marginal I mean it, I, I liked it. I mean, Assassin's Creed actually did do the Revolutionary War unfortunately it wasn't James Monroe <laughs> I forget actually what character that was but Still, still a good game. Anyway, born in 1758, he came he came of age right as the Revolutionary War broke out and fought in several important battles, even alongside George Washington himself in the Battle of Trenton. But following the war, he embarked on quite a political journey. You know, in his career, he was a congressional delegate for Virginia, a U.S. senator of the first U.S. Senate, uh, the U.S. minister for France and the United Kingdom in two separate posts the governor of Virginia, the secretary of state, and the secretary of war until finally becoming the 50 U.S. president. Yeah, his political career, you know, essentially starts with his military service and runs almost 50 years to 1825. So That's, this guy has a has a three-page resume. Yeah, he's like, you know he has that, like Joe Biden-like longevity. <laughs> career uh, politician and American figure, essentially. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people yeah. get angry today uh, about folks who aspire to be career politicians, but you know, we've always had those figures since the beginning, and Monroe yeah. is a clear example. I mean, one can argue that Adams also had a, a pretty long uh, resume. It wasn't as varied as Monroe. And so the question is then, you know, what did Monroe uniquely bring to the table in the shaping of the nation compared to his contemporaries? Um, and if he's so experienced and important, why did it take him so long to become president? You know, no one really remembers the fifth president. Um, but he follows a long line of Virginians that dominate the presidency, as he's the fourth Virginian to take the office out of the first five, with all of them getting two terms. And well, in Adams, the lone, the lone non-Virginian getting just one. So his longtime mentors throughout his political career are Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and are the two men who actually preceded him in holding the office. So conventional wisdom would probably have us all make the assumption that Monroe was just a groomed successor for when those two had to carry or when those two had to leave um, and he had to just carry on the political torch. Even though that could be somewhat true, you know, there's a more interesting case to be made that he was more influential on Jefferson and Madison than they were on him. And that's very eye-opening because as far as the first string of presidents go, you know, the early Democratic Republicans that we covered a little bit in the Adams episode were much more impactful in shaping the course of the U.S. than the Federalists, the early Federalist presidents, mm -hmm. Washington and Adams. Yep. To go even further, you know, I would make the case that Monroe really set into shape the foundation of how the nation would proceed in domestic and international affairs for decades, if not centuries. He really could be the most consequential U.S. president of all time. <laughs> And I'm not necessarily saying that's a good thing either. Uh, like a lot of presidents, uh, there are a lot of highs and lows of being consequential. The lows looking more egregious as we get further ahead in time as well. Um, but if you want to find a key figure to study about someone who made decisions to set the stage for the Civil War, Monroe could be your guy. But if you want to find a key figure for someone who shaped who completely shaped U.S. colonialism, westward expansion, foreign policy, 
Moreau should be your guy. Um, he's the most crucial, I would say he's the most crucial bridge between the founding democratic sentiment of the nation and translating that to what it looks like after the founders are gone, which ends up being uh, a country that actually has a very limited democracy and an untamed lust for more power and resources. In saying that as well, you know, it kind of destroys the romanticism of the founders in the first place, right? Because, you know, seeing as we developed the same aspirations as England <laughs> from when we broke from them, it's it, he's going to be an interesting. I mean, it's it's hard to it's hard to argue that it's a fool's errand to romanticize anybody, any historical figure. Period. Because essentially, all of our all of them are humans, so all their faults and all their yeah. I mean, he de definitely. I agree with that. That you know, political figures, especially, are not people that you can just like overall just adore in the sense that figures that are just you know influenced by their worldviews during the current time it's very hard to not and especially now in this uh climate and where we hold up we hold people to the fire like you know people like to throw cancel culture term around but it's really more of um consequences your actions have consequences it's not really being a cancel culture so if if we viewed every single founding father, every single historical figure through our modern eyes, obviously there's going to be a lot of decisions that we're going to just point to yeah. as being Destroy. incorrect or just horrible. Yeah. So yeah, it, it is a very hard thing to balance once we're discussing this type of figures, especially one that clearly you're setting up to be so influential and in how our political system is run right now. Yeah, and, and and unfortunately, I wish like wow, I think that's true. You know, like uh, political figures, you know, you're not going to know what the best decision is right in the moment, and you're you know developed in a context like James Monroe was created in a world where you know he thought that you know owning slaves was okay, and that he was you know like the lust for power and resources was something that was acceptable, and he had to react to that world, but. At the same time, there are people in these contexts who still know better, who still make good decisions that are unpopular. And that's what I mm. think, you know, separates good presidents or good leaders. And that's what I think we should look for in these people. You know, and there's hey, a mix John of Adams, John Adams didn't have slaves. That's what nope. I learned in my episode. <laughs> and, fun, you know, I'm pulling back the veil a little bit. Today we're recording the this episode when the John Adams episode dropped. Thank you for listening. So yeah, it can it can be argued that you're just not a, you can't just say that you're a product of your time when there are people within your time that knew better um, not to take advantage of the the systems that were in place. It, it's going to be interesting to see you know what we determine you know what he knew better on and what decisions he could have made better as well here. So all right, so we're going to start with his early life. James Monroe grew up in a well-off family. And his dad was a planner and owned slaves. And Monroe received a typical education for a kid growing up with the background of a slave-owning family. Uh, both of his parents actually die pretty early in his life by the time he's 16. And shortly after he goes to, shortly afterward, he goes to Williamsburg, Virginia to start his college education at the College of William and Mary. And this is the start of a journey for him and how he's able to become so well-connected. Uh, for example, one of his classmates that he befriends um, while at William and Mary is John Marshall our fourth Supreme Court Chief uh, Justice of the U.S., um, who's incredibly significant in the early days of establishing the foundation of our country's constitutional law 
especially as it pertains to the supremacy clause and the violence of federalism. Uh, but it's also during this time that he meets Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and George Washington, and you know becomes, for lack of a better term, for lack of a better term, he becomes indoctrinated into the revolutionary movement. Um, so this is the time of his life where these important figures are having a profound impact on him, and it leads him to participating in the storming of the governor's palace in Virginia. And governors at that time, you know, were British representatives essentially there to maintain colonial rule. Well, in, in the event when that governor, Lord Dunmore, uh, flees Virginia due to some early defeats by revolutionary militia, and they're able, you know, him, him and, his, and some students able to um, secure a large stash of gunpowder and weapons for the Continental Army. So that's kind of his early introduction into revolutionary movement. So I wanted to ask you, you mentioned all these great, you know, historical figures. Are they all around the same age or was there like this no. one figure that was like almost like the father figure that led all of them? Uh, William and Mary at the time, it's like a very historical school. I mean, even today, if you go to William and Mary, you become pretty well connected. So, you know, these figures just all had a hand in being very like influential in Virginia and being influential still even in the school system. So George Washington is much older than James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, and obviously Monroe. But uh, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, I, I believe they're around 10 years older. So they're not exactly the same age. It's just they're that, not like, peers. You, so you can peers. see why why he was, he used the word that you used, indoctrinated, because yes. this, you know, these older figures come into his life and essentially open his eyes to you know, the revolution and why this country needs needs to break away from England, right? essentially. Right, right. And he completely, you know, is on board with the revolution. It's kind of like, you know, his big opportunity in the beginning here. And so naturally, he cuts his education short from fighting um, that is breaking out in 1775 and 1776 in the colonies. Uh, he signs up to be an officer in the Continental Army and, and fights in several landmark battles in his first four years. Uh, most notably, he was a key figure in the Battle of Trenton, which uh, people might pick out from that famous painting of Washington standing up on yeah. you know, that little boat looking stoic and his like knees perched up. Um, yeah, yeah, like yeah. Showing. And yeah, he's just this cool, like, it's a really cool photo going across the, the Delaware River. But if you know what I'm talking about, um, Monroe is just uh, behind him in the picture holding the American flag. Um, That's I used to awesome. A- I didn't know that. I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, I used to have a cool shirt in college with like a picture of the painting. And uh, I think it would be like Monroe who would be like holding it. It was he's like holding a boom box instead of the flag. That was like my favorite shirt. (laughs) Yeah, but I didn't know that either, actually, before the the episode. So that that was pretty cool. Um, Anyway, Monroe actually gets uh, severely wounded in that battle and almost dies. Um, But he's able to recover and he makes more of a name for himself by being present in so many of these major battles in a revolutionary war. So um yeah it's pretty major because now you know not a lot of founders actually have well not a lot of the presidential founders have a lot of you know experience in combat a lot of them are just like delegates overseas and he's actually you know on the ground making moves so as the revolutionary war is sort of a launching pad for a lot of early presidents i don't want to get too far in the weeds here with it you know the united states wins the war and monroe makes a good decision for himself in seeking out thomas jefferson after the war to study under him practicing practicing law throughout the 1780s. He also continues to cultivate his relation his friendship with James Madison and this really becomes crucial in solidifying his political future. 
Uh, like I said earlier, these three men completely drive the course of where the country is going to head in its history. And Monroe is sort of the little brother in this trio. Uh, Madison and Jefferson are a bit older and have a lot more diplomatic experience behind them. Um, and we're also instrumental in drafting the founding documents of the country. Jefferson with the Declaration and Madison with the Federalist Papers, um, which influences much of what is in the Constitution alongside his fellow partners in writing those papers, Alexander Hamilton and John Jay. Were those two, um, the big brothers essentially, also part of all those battles that you mentioned, or were they in the background? No, they're in the background. Jefferson was um, overseas for much of the war. He was in France trying to get them to send their you know military supplies ships be a part of the war um i believe madison also had like a delegation somewhere in overseas i'm not 100 on him but no they were not they were not in the army like fighting in any sense no so he was the no. only one actually well along with um washington i'm assuming also um actually getting his hands dirty and fighting for the country to get their yes. independence Yeah, he, he and Alexander Hamilton, also a big figure um, in this episode, are ones more so doing, I mean, Hamilton has to be like Washington's secretary for a lot of the war, but he wants to fight. These are the two people who are more willing to actually do the combat um, in terms of the early founders. Monroe needs a, we're going to move into, you know, sort of the constitutional side of things after the Revolutionary War. Monroe needs a political assignment. Um, if he's going to continue making a name for himself. And, and that comes in 1782 with being elected to the Virginia House of Delegates. And this in-between period of winning the Revolutionary War and the drafting of the Constitution in 1789 is kind of messy um, and really not a great start for American governance. The country starts off with a lot of debt placed on it because of the war. And since they had a lot of help from France, they were trying to figure out the best way uh, to pay for these debts. Uh, we're operating right now under the Articles of Confederation at the time, uh, which prioritizes the power of states over the federal government. Uh, and there's no centralized authority to actually tax the states and raise revenue to pay off debts and provide general funding for projects and interests that benefit the nation as a whole. So this sort of this is sort of the birth, I would say, of American partisanship within this very problem. And, and honestly, uh, will continue long after we are gone, which is how powerful should the federal government actually be? You know, um, and what powers should the states be able to keep for their own governance? And, and that question today is probably much more complicated than it was then um, in some ways. And I mean, in comparison, you know, their problems are, are pretty simple. A lot of the early arguments here are, are about establishing a centralized authority for taxation and establishing a national bank to strengthen American credit. Um, the factions start to form immediately with Jefferson, Madison and Monroe on the side of there being a weak centralized government with limited authority on these financial matters. And Alexander Hamilton and George Washington are on the other side of this argument, with Hamilton being you know, the much more forceful figure on establishing a national bank and having a strong federal government. Outside of being within these groups and essentially being part of all these discussions and wars, and Alexander Hamilton actually never reaches any traditional High, high political command, right? He, Hamilton, he, he is a secretary of the treasury for Washington. And he is essentially, I mean, I know that the, the vice president is like the second, in, I mean, in the sense that if like the president died, he would take over. But really, like Hamilton was running the show with Washington. So at this point, you know, that is the major threat 
to the three, you know, brothers here, as in like Monroe, Madison, Jefferson, it's, it's Hamilton having so much influence over someone like Washington, who is mm-hmm. like the most popular figure in the country, and really the centralizing figure in, you know, how these factions are, are building out. And so, yeah, Hamilton's downfall is going to be outlined in this episode. And that is actually surprising. Are you going to do it? Are you going to rap while you're not downloading? I wish. I, Come on, yeah. Neil. I mean, yeah, you should. I also encourage everybody to watch Hamilton because it's great. But this if, is actually. If, if we have, you know, enough fans and we make enough money, you know, I'm Puerto Rican. Back. I'm Puerto Rican. I could probably get in contact with Lin Manuel and and we'll bring him on and you can outline the entire hamilton story again and he can wrap it probably yeah yeah that sounds just subscribe rate you know (laughs) share if you really want this to be done guys just share comment you know make this is enough popular for us to have enough money to hire lin manuel that's your goal now guys that's your goal yes good takeaway definitely we need to get that done Um, (laughs) and so it's important to, you know, highlight these two sides because, you know, they're, they're going to trade victories that set up the country for a, a painful course of history. And, you know, I honestly think that if we had a president, Alexander Hamilton, rather than a president Jefferson or a president Monroe, our country would have been much better off in that universe. Um, but let's not dive into that just yet. You know, eventually, you know, even the three Virginians here had to own up to the fact that the nation uh, could not continue operating as it was under the Articles of Confederation. Uh, the country had trouble putting down rebellions because there wasn't a national army. States could put tariffs on other states' goods. There wasn't, you know, a national judicial branch. Each state only had one vote in Congress, which in the modern day would essentially translate to California having the same number of House members as Wyoming. Didn't make any sense. Um, and so it was terribly constructed. And we went back to the drawing board and, and came out with the U.S. Constitution. So back to Monroe here, since he is part of the Virginia House of Delegates, he's able to participate in the debate over the passage of the Constitution and ultimately voted not to ratify it, even though, you know, Virginia in the end held held out enough votes to ratify the Constitution as a delegation. Um, So ironically enough, you know, Monroe did not want to ratify it because he wanted to clearly ensure the passage of the Bill of Rights, um, which ultimately did uh, pass, you know, after the Constitution was ratified, the first, you know, Congress had to actually pass it. But, you know, while that may come off as like a noble protest vote, you know, it certainly probably drew an eye roll from many of his colleagues, um, probably on the Federalist side of things. Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, as far as I can tell with researching Monroe, you know, the guy had really no reservations in keeping the institution of slavery um, well established in the U.S. And as he became wealthier, he bought more land, he acquired more slaves throughout his life, and he garnered little interest in the care and quality of their lives. And that goes for for Jefferson as well, and, and to an yeah. extent Madison. Uh, and that even was, though that they, was that was going to be yeah. my question as well, right? Because Jefferson is probably the I don't know if it's this is an honor, but one of the most famous slave owners um, in American history. So one could one could see why Monroe would hold his values towards or his views essentially towards the slavery if Jefferson is one of his guiding beacons. Mm-hmm. And um and his views and, and towards the work. Yeah, it's very normalized. But I just want to, you know, you've already pointed out, Adams didn't have any. I mean, Alexander Hamilton, you know, while these people probably could have done more in their own ways, like they also, you know, spoke out and, and condemned the practice, even though they didn't really like prioritize it 
in the constant and you know in, the, in ratifying the constitution necessarily so yeah like i said these are one of the things where you know they could have done more again they were raised in virginia which was you know a, a slave state at that time you know everything kind of north i think it was like north of virginia and like the ohio river you know those were states that didn't have i believe at that time didn't have any practice of slavery north of that but so they have like different contexts there and what's acceptable and what isn't but at the same time yeah it's all it's all what you yeah essentially it's all what you view as normal what you see as a child what you see as values essentially is how you view the world it's and it's not a blanket statement because a lot of people grow up and form their own views outside of what they see growing up yeah and i mean i agree that's just essentially why it's it's kind of hard to to make that judgment and be easier if we could actually you know talk to these people and, and see you know why they need all right that's the second that's the second tier guys If you make us enough money out of this podcast, you know, forget Lee Manuel. We're actually going to revive James Monroe, bring him to this podcast, and talk to him about slavery. Like, why did he do it? Essentially, that's that's the only question we're going to ask. We're not going to ask him anything else. I don't know. I think if anybody came up with that technology, they probably wouldn't bring it to us first. But <laughs> well, yeah, or it would be it would be eye opening. I don't I don't know if it would be fun. well. Yeah. I'm just gonna. <laughs> but the U.S. Constitution is ratified, as we all know, and we have to fill out all the positions now uh, in the U.S. government. So now I'm not sure if you know you're ready for this sixth sense like plot twist in Monroe's journey. You said Monroe decides to run for the House of Representatives in Virginia against James Madison, and so this is the only congressional election in U.S. history where two future presidents ran against each other. This this kind of you know doesn't makes sense to me when i first saw this I'm like you know why would he run against james madison yeah and, that's his big brother and so yeah my my characterization at first kind of seems a bit unfair you know monroe was was heavily recruited by anti-federalists to be in the race against madison because madison kind of got into trouble with you know some of their their key allies that they had uh the real situation here is that you know Out of sorry, out of Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe, Madison was the most sympathetic to having a strong centralized government than the other two. Uh, the Bill of Rights could not pass until Congress went through the process of actually passing the amendments when they were in session. And so, when the Constitution was ratified, there technically wasn't a guarantee that the Bill of Rights was going to pass. And so, anti-federalists feared people like Madison, who was instrumental in crafting the Constitution. Uh, that he would not support the Bill of Rights once elected since he was on the fence that it was needed during the ratifying process. Um, and he changed the course of campaign, or he changed course during the campaign, though. Yeah, and he beat still a very young and not as well-established Monroe. You got to keep taking into account at the time, Monroe still only 30 years old at this point. And he beat them out 58% to 42% of the vote. Turns out the two of them never actually attempted to you know, attack one another during the election. And even though I kind of hype this up a bit in terms of, you know, it turns out Monroe is fine in the end. And, and he becomes senator a year later when uh, William Grayson dies a year into his term. So there was it wasn't really it wasn't really a rift between them. It was essentially no they, know, a healthy competition between them. Exactly. And in Madison, I mean, notes that several times with first person like letters that he writes out um in his documents that you know he, it, he's like surprised at how cordial they are with one another with kind of like the different tense situations they find themselves in throughout their lives because they're gonna have a lot of long history together 
Oh, sorry. Is this like the first like recorded case of fights you have with your family at dinner tables? But then, you know, you split a cert and one of them offers to pay the bill and you're like, oh, well, we'll see you. We, we'll see each other again next Friday. Yeah. Like, you know, you know that you're going to fight again next Friday. But, you know, the search is really good at the end. Always. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. They, they yeah, they definitely end up, they don't really ever like let the beef go past like the initial like incident, I guess, I guess mm. is what I should say. Good so, for them. Good for those slave owners. Well, no. Yeah. So Virginia legislators, <laughs> so Virginia legislators selects um, him to serve out the remainder of the Senate term for William Grayson. And so we have Senator Monroe. Um, Monroe joins the Senate at the height of the Hamilton and Jefferson battle for control of the country's future. And the fight was centralizing around whether the nation was going to continue its trend to a more centralized government that can more easily control the economic fortunes of the country, as well as being more friendly with Britain over France, um, or the other way around, you know, where states could retain strong control of their economic fortunes, and, and also the country would support the French revolutionary effort. You know, that was obviously, you know, that was the side of Jefferson, and then more of the pro-Britain side was Hamilton. Monroe is a loyal Jeffersonian and advocates for his ideas for his, you know, ideal policies in the Senate. George Washington, though, wants nothing but complete neutrality between Britain and France, and actually turns to Monroe, and that's probably likely off the advice of Jefferson, because we have to remember at this time, Jefferson's as a Secretary of the State, to leave uh, the Senate early in this term to make him the US, the U.S. Minister to France. So this is when he takes over that job, he leaves the Senate, 1794 he heads to France, this is a huge opportunity for Monroe to really stand out and make a name for himself in a top executive position. Uh, and the priority for the nation during this time, as we talked about in the Adams episode, is for the United States to not be drawn into a war so early, you know, in its development. And so Monroe has to keep French revolutionaries happy by ensuring the U.S. is not sympathizing with Britain in their war with one another. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen. And to be fair to Monroe, it certainly doesn't look like it's completely his fault. The Jay Treaty between the U.S. and Britain is signed a few months after Monroe arrives in France, which, as we also discussed in the Adams episode, normalizes trade between the two countries and ensures that they will not go to war with one another. Um, France, understand France, though, understandably views this treaty as a signal that the U.S. is siding with Britain in their war. Monroe does not do a good job of convincing him otherwise. <laughs> he tries to ensure the French that the agreements they have in place do not change the U.S. stance on France's war with Britain, but end up not trusting Monroe and the U.S. becomes dangerously close to having to engage in, in war with France. And essentially that would be, that would have been a death nail on our small country during those times because if, yeah, if no my memory serves, the French army right now is one of the most powerful armies in the entire world, right? Yeah, both of them. I mean, yeah, if you get in a war with Britain and France, you're kind of... You're, you're not in a good place. You're, you're, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so that's in, in the Napoleon's about to come into power. He's yeah. about to, you know, kind of wreak havoc all in Europe. So yeah, this is a, not a good situation to be in for us if we're going to go to war with any of those two countries. And so the Federalists, you know, instead of blaming the Jay Treaty, which probably, you know, was what set France off in the first place, they blame Monroe for not keeping, you know, the relationship with France stable when he got news of the treaty. And Monroe is recalled from France and sent home with no political position for the first time since the end of the Revolutionary War. And so to make things worse, Monroe also becomes the leading figure in the story of the downfall, in the downfall of Alexander Hamilton. Uh, and this is incredibly significant because, as we've kind of noted here, Hamilton is the one person that is holding the, the whole Federalist Party together, in a sense. 
it's not John Adams, um, who's also a Federalist, but um, Hamilton is a much more notable and persuasive figure than Adams, and not just with the public, but within the whole government itself. If Hamilton goes down, the government essentially falls to Jefferson. And there's no one that is as high profile and can match Jefferson's credentials for policy decision making than him. If you really want to have control of the government at this point, um, at least from you know the side of Monroe, Madison, and Jefferson, they wanted to bring down Hamilton. I always found it weird in this country that everybody has you know, so such volatile opinions regarding the founding fathers that nobody bl blinked an eye when a Puerto Rican played him in a musical. Do you yeah. ever find it yeah. weird that, that nobody questioned Lin-Manuel? I know, sorry, Lin, I keep bringing you up. You know, we're best friends. Mm -hmm. uh, come on the podcast whenever you want. Um, but I always found it weird that everybody was like, yeah, a Puerto Rican is uh, Hamilton. We're good with it. Go on rapping, my man. Yeah, I, I think that that was, you know, great though i mean it, it was great like throughout the whole set um because you know you had like a, a a black person playing james madison and you had you know a lot of like diversity just playing like all of these characters in this in the musical and i think it made it much better like i was just like still it, it didn't have like i was so enthralled with just like the way that they were able to like show the story and like just like yeah. perform these like amazing songs like yeah, I, I and and also how like everybody embraced it too. Like I was, you know, I didn't watch Hamilton probably until like a year after, you know, you could like hear the musical like on Spotify or something. And yeah, I, shout out to Spotify. Was, shout out to Spotify that they're uh, you know sponsoring this episode. I mean, like the the country, like I mean, the literally the show was sold out for like who knows how long, you know. Oh like, no, yeah, it was one of those crazy, like, crazy Broadway yeah. shows. But yeah, I always found that you know mesmerizing in this. Yeah. The social climate that we live in, yeah, it's, yeah, the social climate that we live in is so reactive to everything. You know, The Little Mermaid is cast yeah, as, you know, this black beautiful actress, singer, amazing singer, Chloe, and everybody's like, oh, that's not my Little Mermaid, but yeah. literally the the founding fathers were cast as Puerto Rican or Dominican or black, and every, nobody batted an eye, and everybody just enjoyed the the musical. So, you know, I, I don't know. This is, has nothing to do with James Monroe, but I always, no, no, I never I mean, had an outlet to communicate this word, so I'm just communicating to you guys. That's interesting because that that they do seem to be an outlier in like all of like the the outrage that comes along with like mm -hmm. trying to get more diverse. <laughs> like diverse people into you know our culture and like be a part of our our story and because they always have been they've just always been excluded so yeah that's a that's a good point and that's what makes Hamilton even more great in the sense that like the nation actually like embraced it without you know making it such a pain to listen to like the the cultural backlash of it jumping back to 1792 you know we have James Monroe as a senator and he was investigated for a crime or he, sorry, he was investigating a crime um, for oh. government funds that were being used in a financial scheme uh, by one of his colleagues' former clerks. Monroe found out that one of the men caught up in the scheme, whose name was James Reynolds, was taking payments from Hamilton, which seemed uh, pretty suspicious given he was just arrested. Um, Monroe confronted Hamilton uh, and was ready to make it public and bring down Hamilton then that he was, you know, very much um, assisting with James Reynolds' like, scam. And Hamilton um, confess, confesses to Monroe that he was not using government funds to pay Reynolds in his scheme. He was paying Reynolds because he was sleeping with his wife. Uh, and Reynolds found out and blackmailed him 
to keep it quiet. Um, oh, yeah. is, I haven't seen I haven't seen Hamilton yet. Is that part of the musical? That that so it's it's part of the musical, but Monroe is is cut out of this part of the story. Like he, they don't. Monroe is not in the musical. Monroe is not in musical. No. And we're Monroe. doing two parts of Monroe, <laughs> and he's not in Hamilton, Neil. Which is why we gotta talk about. Yeah, I don't know why he's not in Hamilton. He should have been think... in Hamilton at this part. Dude, this is the nail in the coffin. Neil Lynn is never coming to this podcast <laughs> now because we're doing a two part on somebody that he cut out of history, essentially. No, he could make a musical about Monroe. He could get inspired, oh. and then he'll have All a whole right. thing. Yeah, it, this, this is a, a wild scenario and how <laughs> Hamilton goes down. Hamilton. Yeah. So this is this is what Hamilton goes through in the lengths to to keep this quiet. Um, because again, he's getting blackmailed by this James Reynolds man who finds out that he's sleeping with his wife. So Hamilton shows Monroe the letters between the two men to prove his story that he's not, you know, actually like using government funds for corruption. And Monroe in 1792 actually agrees to keep it quiet and to not oh. make any of the story public. Um, but he does, he does document the conversation so that they could close the investigation on Hamilton because it wasn't just him. It was, you know, a group of senators, you know, trying to investigated so that kind of shows monroe you know i know we've discussed his faults but it shows monroe's character essentially because he could have used this easy out to eliminate a political figure that was essentially a roadblock for him and his crew of brothers so he could have taken that easy out but he didn't he took uh one could argue an ethical yes. position there, there is that, and and yeah, you could you can maybe throw him some credit there, but you also have to take into account we're like th we're three years into the first administration, yeah. <laughs> and it it yeah. looks really bad if like one of the top officials is already caught up in a scheme like this. I think Monroe was actually looking out for the best interests of the nation to not have an embarrassing thing come out about like the most one of the most prominent you know political figures in the country. But either way, I would say yeah, it's a it's a more noble move on his part in this journey. But we flash forward now to 1797. Uh, and when Monroe is sent home in disgrace from France, the letters are stolen while he's transferring documents between addresses for safer storage. And the story breaks out when the details of Hamilton are discovered by a scandal writer and published to the public. This is the part that's in Hamilton. Um, so these uh, letters- I'm gonna call, I'm gonna go BS. I'm gonna do air quotes and say stolen. I'm going to take back all the kudos that I gave Monroe. I'm going to say he planted this. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. It didn't seem like he planted it, but you don't know. We weren't there. <laughs> These letters wreck Hamilton's image and any future political aspirations he may have. And he believes that Monroe published the letters. He's, he's doing what you do at this point. He's in, in retaliation for, for being recalled from his minister position. This all happens as he's coming home from France in humiliation and then the story breaks out about Hamilton, and, and as we've noted, Hamilton, you know, pretty much is in the ear of of the of the cabinet at the time of Washington's cabinet that recalls him. So, I mean, it's reasonable for Hamilton to think that Monroe is is trying to get revenge on him, but it's not clear that he actually did that um, because Monroe denies this, and Hamilton again challenges that, and he actually challenges Monroe to a duel, and Monroe accepts. So the drama in the story does not stop here because. It, it's it's hard to believe how ironic it gets. You know, Monroe and Hamilton are ready to kill one another over the scandal getting out. And the only thing stopping them are their their seconds, which 
they're those the seconds are negotiators uh, of peace in a duel. If you were in a duel and your second could not make peace with the other second, um, the duel proceeded, and and you know you would like fire, you know you try to kill their person. Um, but what is wild about the story is that James Monroe chose Aaron Burr as his second, and that Aaron Burr is the man who eventually kills Alexander Hamilton in a duel six years later. <laughs> so, in this duel, I'm Aaron Burr actually negotiates break. the peace. I don't know. I maybe I don't know the sense. I don't know the def the definition of irony, but there's some somewhere in there uh, Birch saving Hamilton's. Maybe, I don't know, maybe Hamilton would have killed Monroe. We never know. But um Birch essentially saving Hamilton only to kill him six years later. It's it's pretty well yeah, cool I don't think Burr was anticipating um killing Alexander Hamilton at this point. And yeah, it's insane. The thing is is what they really try to emphasize in the in the Hamilton musical is that Hamilton is a much better shot than most people especially burr like burr isn't necessarily like a good like in, in the duel where like hamilton dies like he points his gun to this guy and just fires up because that's what he does for most for like all of his duels he doesn't actually fire at the opponent but burr actually like shoots him and kills him but you know Min like we know that monroe actually had military experience so i'm actually not sure which would be like the better yeah duel. that's true actually that's a great point That's a so, great point. So probably wasn't both of more. them, both of them. Well, you told me that Hamilton mostly stayed as a secretary, but Monroe actually saw battle. Yeah. And and back then, like in the 1700s and the 1800s, like life expectancy was like I don't know, 20, 25 years old to like 40. So might have been whenever whenever you see a, a 40 plus year old, you know that he either has money or he knows how to survive a war. Yeah, that's what you get. I mean, I don't know why Hamilton would challenge all these people with duels and then I never actually, I, I don't get like what the honorable stature of that is. I mean, again, I think I mean, there's a lot of ways to like kind of get that perspective, but it just sounds so like, I just think it's so disappointing that he dies in the nature that he dies. You know, like he literally like founds the whole like, treasury system of the united states and then he just dies from a duel i don't know it just doesn't seem it seems weird and so monroe briefly takes a break from politics for two years um but his connections within the country are too strong at this point to ever keeping to ever really keep him from holding an office now uh the virginia legislator brings monroe back in power Uh, when the position of governor for the state becomes open, and he takes office in 1799. Uh, Monroe is back and feeling very motivated to end the Federalist Party that tried to bring down his political career. Um, so one of Monroe's main priorities for the first couple of years as governor was to ensure that Jefferson prevailed as a winner in the 1800 general election. And governors at this time didn't really have a lot of power to implement policy all the time, but they did have the power to appoint election officials. And now it's likely that Jefferson probably would have you know, won his home state without the help of Monroe. Monroe certainly used its influence and connections to ensure that Virginia would go to Jefferson. So, you know, as we all know, Jefferson defeats Adams. Uh, the Democratic Republicans take the office of the presidency and the empire of Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe begins over the next 25 years, uh, with all three heavily being, um, with all three being heavily involved in each other's administrations until Jefferson and Madison retire from politics. Um, and as I know, you know, Hamilton dies in 1803. Adams is never tapped to return to politics again. And we proceed with, you know, the very few, there, there are really no close elections until these next three presidents complete all their two terms. So this just becomes 
sort of like a dynasty that starts mm. in American politics. How and long does it last? This is it 1801 where Jefferson takes in a first uh, his first term and Monroe ends his second term in 1825. So 25, 25 years. 25 years. Wow. Yes. And so this is where we're going to stop in the timeline for now. Um, as we're putting Monroe's episode into two parts, the first half of here, you know, kind of documents his contributions to the rise of not only his career, but of Jefferson and Madison's careers as well. And what we're going to find out for our next episode, though, is how he's going to be able to stand out above his two mentors for better and for worse, you know, and, and really dive into how his role in the next three administrations drove us into some short term prosperity in exchange for long term despair. And that sounds like a summary for like the story of capitalism. But yeah, you said, <laughs> what do you what do you think of James Monroe so far? Yeah, I, I, I fully understand why you decided to do a two part one. It's he's his story is too woven in to with everyone else. Yeah. With everyone else to argue that you could have just say, hey, he was the guy that almost killed Hamilton and then you started talking about his presidents. It didn't disappoint. I understand why it's a two parter and I'm I'm fully looking forward to that cliffhanger that you just set up with uh the long despair. Yeah. Um, in terms of his presidency. If, if we if we want to compare, you know, Lyndon Johnson and James Monroe, they actually have sort of a similar dynamic in their uh, policies being incredibly long-term, like more long-term than most presidents. And, you know, we, we made some arguments for, for Johnson being that, for that being a good thing on his end. I don't know if we're gonna be able to make those same arguments for Monroe. All right, so that's kind of a spoiler uh, because essentially <laughs> in the end of the <laughs> end of every episode, I ask you who's the better president. And right now, Lyndon is the best president. He just beat out of, beat out Taft. So I don't know how to close out this episode because usually we, we do a full full review of how peers look back on him. So I'm just going to save save that and who's your favorite president for part two. Mm-hmm. Thank you for tuning in, guys. Thank you for you know getting us to that goal of either hiring Lynn to do a Hamilton <laughs> episode or reviving James Monroe. It means the world to us that you're listening, you're liking, you're sharing, you're subscribing. You can follow us on all the social medias. Unprecedented and podcast. Unprecedented the podcast. And, you know, let's, we'll see you in two weeks for James yeah. One Row Part 2. Part 2. Get ready. Bye. Bye.